Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. Today we're talking about something that's going to affect all of us. I am personally going through issues with this right now. I know those of you who are watching and listening, you're experiencing issues with this, and that's caring for the folks who cared for us for so many years. Today, we have an elder care expert, an expert in life care management, and we're going to talk about what you do when the people you care most about get older and they need care that becomes advanced care. Please be sure to stick with us for the entire episode of this critically important Inside BS show. Good afternoon, good morning, good day. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and today we have with us today Kate Granigan, and she's the CEO of Life Care Advocates, and she's going to help us today with how to handle the issues that come with the people we care about most getting older. So, Kate, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, so Kate, I want you to to give us your background because you have extensive experience in this because I, I want people to know that they're they're listening to, they're watching a real expert. So how did you get started in this field and how long have you been doing this and what do you bring to the table that enables you to give us the best possible advice on this really sensitive subject? Sure. Well, I, I came to this field from, uh, you know, sort of starting out in my life watching family members as, as helpers in the human service field. So, you know, I, I sort of came along into first education and then went for a master's in social work. And quite honestly, I did not start my career in aging. I actually started it on the other end of the spectrum. But I, I've always worked with families and family systems and, and in the home setting. And, you know, as I uh, raised my own two kids, I decided I would take a different path and began working as a master's level social worker in a uh, visiting nurse association. And in that setting, which if you've, you know, come across those services and needed it, you realize that when an older adult is homebound because of a, an event or an illness, the visiting nurse often will come well, along with a team of other people to help navigate their, their needs. And I did that as a social worker for years, um, but the, the sticking point for me and the turn for my career was really the, those services are covered by insurance and the insurance limits the, the care and the services and the support during an acute event. But ironically, when the, when the wound heals and the event sort of ends or becomes stable, all those services pull out until the next time. And as a social worker, I was finding myself visiting in periodic, of, you know, months with the same person that would end up declining, ending up in the hospital, and then back at home with the need for these services. And as a social worker doing the role, I felt very frustrated by the fact that if the services would be more proactive or, you know, allow for more monitoring and support, and the families, quite frankly, were, were asking for this, I thought we, you know, we could really make a better difference here. We could stop sending people to the hospital to get care, and instead we could proactively manage that and help them live a better life, have a quality of life, give their kids some peace of mind. And so, in uh, the '90s, after doing that work for a while, I decided to start. I decided to start a company. Um, started in my basement with two kids, uh, really just by instinct, knowing that this was a need. Um, that consulting company. Uh, grew and uh, long story short 30 years later um, still doing the work 
Uh, I do the work a little differently now. I help um, run a practice that has uh, 14 plus some uh, management um, of professionals that, like I was doing, help folks manage and monitor and navigate all things aging. All right. Well, that's that's tremendous. So people know now that we're we're absolutely speaking to an expert on this subject. I think, Kate, where I want to start is where the, the thing that I struggle with the most, and that is when when you're dealing with someone who over the years cared for you and was an example for you and really showed you how to live and how to grow up, and now the tables have turned and it's time for you to care for them, but you also feel like you're dealing with it from the other end of the spectrum because you may have a family of your own, right? It's the, it's the absolute sandwich generation. What, how, do you, how do you counsel folks to make decisions for their aging parents when there's this overwhelming feeling of you know, guilt. Do I, you know, am I sacrificing my, you know, in a financial way to take care of this older person? Do I bring someone into my home who may be, you know, a different person than they were just six months or a year ago? Because when, you know, when there's dementia or when there's Alzheimer's, that can progress quite rapidly. And it, it absolutely changes the dynamic of the household. What's the counsel you give to the people who ultimately end up making these decisions, but just have this crushing, overwhelming sense of guilt if they feel like they don't keep them close to them. And now it's time for another Sandrowski Business Minute. And today we have Jody Mersinger with us, and she's going to tell us if we should buy real estate in our own name or if we should take real estate and other assets and use some sort of a vehicle to own them. Jody, what do you say about this? Dave, it's generally not recommended to purchase certain assets in your own name, um, with the two significant reasons being, um, oh, wait, 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 I need to start over. Okay. Dave, it's generally not recommended to purchase certain assets in your own name, um, especially a business and or real estate. Uh, first of all, for legal reasons, uh, you don't want to expose yourself to uh, more liability than you need to. Keeping your assets separate um, to not expose the liability of one to the other um, is is what. <laughs> well, you, you don't want to. So, you, you what you what you want to do is you want to keep your assets separate from your per, yourself because if an asset gets sued or somebody attaches a lien to an asset, you don't want it to contaminate everything else. Right. I, I don't remember how what my last thing was, but but right. I you know you want to keep the assets separate so you're not exposing the liability of one to the other, such as business and and real estate. Oftentimes, um, a business owns the real estate that it operates in and we recommend to hold the real estate outside of the business for that reason so that creditors of the business cannot attack the real estate and creditors of the real estate cannot attach to the business. Um, also likewise with real estate and your personal assets. It, 
makes sense to keep the real estate in a separate legal entity so that if you're sued or someone falls on your property that they cannot go after your personal assets. Um, and then also tiling assets between spouses is important to help maximize estate exemptions. Also keeping in mind that tiling of assets will direct the flow of your assets such as if you have a jointly held asset upon your demise that asset will go to the joint tenant. Um, also uh, it's important to title assets. Oh, wait, no, no. We recommend titling assets in a what's called a revocable trust or a living trust uh, which contains provisions regarding asset management and how you want the assets to be transferred in certain events. But the titling of your assets in this trust avoids estate probate and limits estate legal costs. But you continue to use the assets as if the trust didn't exist and everything is reported in your name for tax purposes. But it's a very useful tool. All right, so if you have questions about this or any other tax issue, you can reach Jody by calling 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they're a CPA firm with a different perspective. Well, I wish there was an easy answer to that. That, that answer is as unique as the client that we serve really but the the bottom line is our you know our job in order to begin to counsel them is to get to know them so we don't come in with a prescription for this it's not it's not that easy um actually i probably wouldn't have a job if it was if the systems were easy and the dynamics were easy and the you know the guilt and you know fear and all of those things and not just on the part of the family member but remember this is an older adult who was once running a company or you know absolutely making their own decisions and you know the patriarch or matriarch of a family and now by decline of you know either cognitive or physical or both they're beginning to show signs of vulnerability and you know so it's important and part of our understanding and, and our expertise quite frankly is to understand all the aspects of those dynamics so not just the adult child who sees mom or dad failing and the emotion that brings to them and their own mortality, by the way, but it also helps, you know, really recognize that this older adult, quite frankly, has the right to make bad choices and is typically, even if they have some decline, you know, we try to help people see that, that helping people to find choice, even if the older adult needs to move ultimately, but that's not what they want involving them in the process as much as logically you know available given any you know cognitive decline or you know ability to make those choices helping them and the family feel empowered and come to terms with the changes in a way that makes sense um, is really part of our first process it's really getting to know them objectively as an expert because our eyes and ears and you know observations see things differently you know, adult child may say, you know, we find that the report from an adult child might be mom or dad is absolutely unsafe and can't stay another day or the other end of the spectrum. No, no, they're fine. I think they're fine. They're just, oh, they have a little bit of difficulty. That accident with the car, it was a, a fluke. And then you have other siblings who see things very differently. So our job is to objectively look at the situation with the older adult, their system and their, their challenges and strengths and limitations in mind, and then begin to unpack 
what the what the goals are. What does the older adult want ultimately if they could choose? And if they are choosing, what do the families lose sleep over? And then really knowing the, you know, that's sort of the nuts and bolts of the person. And then our job is responsibly to know what's out there. What's out there in the environment of healthcare and housing and resources and, and really holistically, not just resources like a doctor, but what would fill them up with, uh, you know, a feeling of purpose. So we really look holistically and then help navigate a plan. Is it is it more difficult for you, Kate, to handle uh, cases that start as a as a physical issue, or is it more difficult to handle the cognitive issues at the at the outset? Because mm-hmm. I I've personally seen them both, and when when there's a physical issue, I feel like you can still engage with that person. You can mm-hmm. still you know you can still keep that person sharp, and there are absolutely fantastic resources for helping them get around and for helping them do some of the things that they used to do. But when it's a cognitive decline, it, the feeling to me, and this is, this is just my opinion and it's, is in no way based in, you know, medical or psychological analysis. It's a, it, you're dealing with a different person. Mm-hmm. So how do you, you know, what do you find is easier for families to navigate a, a physical, you know, decline or mm-hmm. a, or a mm-hmm. cognitive decline? Well, I think you really, you know, you, you touched on the fact that a physical decline is, is visible typically. It's apparent. Someone's gait changes, uh, Parkinson's, is in, you know, symptoms are increasing. Those things are, are visible. And so it's easier to name them. It doesn't mean that the place where someone and we might assess someone's safety and risk is going to match up with what that person, even completely cognitively intact, sees their limitations. So the divide and the reality is those still don't always meet in the middle there. However, absolutely, I would say the most difficult, challenging, heartbreaking, um, guilt-ridden space um, that we can, you know, feel such pride in when we can help people navigate is the cognitive. Because one, the person who has cognitive decline sometimes has insight to their, their loss, to their slipping of, of memory and appointments and, you know, those things. So when the person has some awareness, on one hand, that's helpful because they can be part of the plan. And we can really involve them in the discussions, the planning and, and, you know, help everybody experience what, you know, what we know is often losses, you know. But on the other hand, and then also outline and identify strengths and joy that continues and provide hope. When someone has a lack of insight to their own decline, and we see that a great deal, we, you know, you, you, you hear about it, you see it. When there's a lack of understanding or insight to decline, um, you're often talking about someone who's going to be resistant to any kind of support or help because they don't see the need for it. They, if they have any inclination, the fear and their anger about it often is projected in you know, staying in control. So that resistance magnifies. And then you also, you know, it's, it, it's very hard to help someone uh, stay safe or, or accept help uh, no matter what the plea is, you know, if they really can't see the, the circumstances that we see. And so those are some of our, I, I would like to say they are infrequent. Those are probably a, a big uh, percentage of our cases because they are the most challenging. 
Kate, have you seen, because you've been doing this for three decades now, have you seen an increase in the the mental health aspect of this? It has, has it increased or are we just diagnosing it better now? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I would probably say a little bit of both, but I would actually recognize the fact that I think across all age groups, we are, we are naming and acknowledging and destigmatizing mental health. So I think people are more willing and able to name that. On the age spectrum, when you're talking about older adults, I think it's clear and we all know that, you know, in their decades of, of life, naming depression, naming anxiety, naming, you know, those issues were not popular and they typically were undiagnosed. So it's in our experience that we get families who will come to us and they'll say, mom now has dementia, but she has always had an underlying anxiety disorder. You know, because the adult children, quite frankly, now know what it is, they can recognize it. They lived with it their whole lives, but they didn't have a, a label on that or a title or an understanding of that. So it's not unusual for us to get in touch with people or people getting in touch with us that have a, you know, some diagnosed and have a lifelong history of mental illness that's been treated and acknowledged, but now you're layering other kinds of declines that takes a special kind of approach. But then you also have many people who have never been diagnosed. And the good news with things like uh, depression, being able to talk with folks that are aging about you know this in a way that you know if you had diabetes, would you take medicine for that? These are these are you know being able to educate people, adult children, older adults when they're willing. The beauty of this is we can see that it's one of the most treatable um, experiences for older adults. So being able to do some education for both family and adults and, and supporting them in seeking treatment, um, I think that has become more popular and more accepted. So I wouldn't say that, I will say COVID has done a whole nother level of uh, damage to older adults. Um, that's been a, an extraordinary experience and we've learned a lot um, not always in a positive way, but so I would say those things have shown uh, the evidence of anxiety and de uh, depression on top of all the other challenges have become crystal clear. Kate, what is there? Is there a phenomenon that exists that when uh, a couple ages together and then one of them it passes either unexpectedly or as the result of a very the very rapid onset of some mm -hmm. some sort of illness mm -hmm. the other the other one if it isn't addressed quickly seems to decline very very fast is that a mm -hmm. is there a label to put on that phenomenon well some people would say broken heart um you know, sure. honestly, well, that, that is um, that is what it is. But uh, yes. yeah, and but, I, but there there yeah. are there are interventions. If you get yeah. that other person involved with groups and, they, and they're still cognitively stimulated, you yeah. can stave that off. But that, and that's where I was going with that. But yeah. it is it is a real thing. It it's is a, a very real thing. real thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what some people will name. That's what couples will name the other that's left. And but the reality is just what you're identifying. What we often learn and what people come to us is when. Um, it may not that be that a, a, one of the couple has passed, but maybe are hospitalized unexpectedly. And you see all of a sudden family who has watched a couple coexist in a beautiful dance that they've probably done and adapted over the years of their marriage. Um, you see one of those partners step away and now you've got a view that's very different. And so that's sometimes the first place we see that. So if we're lucky enough to be able to intervene during a crisis, uh, it does breed opportunity. 
because at that point we may notice that while dad was you know physically frail mom was cognitively declining but dad filled in for mom and vice versa and so their team allowed them to live independently so the 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 reality is if that's happening or a family sees that getting mom who might be at home and all of a sudden we realize she can't turn the stove on dad's in the hospital unexpectedly but we had no idea this was going on so becoming aware of that and then quickly intervening becoming uh putting in place you know family sometimes needs to be more clear on who's paying the bills in the house and how does that work and shouldn't we get some backup for that what kind of care would mom need if dad went in the hospital again um, if one or the other of them passes what will their social life look in this house that's beautiful but uh, isolating. So yes, all of those things are opportunities. And I think uh, given, given the chance, we have helped couples um, make transitions to ensure that one or the other isn't left in that situation. And then we also have helped when that's happened with the other who, but for some adaptation in their life, would decline rapidly and potentially you know, themselves pass. Yeah, I'm curious, you brought up COVID before. Have mm. you seen a, um, I mean, there, there's there's an increase in all kinds of issues, but for me in particular, the thing that jumps out at me is the decline, cognitive decline from the lack of external stimulation, mm -hmm. but also the increase in fear and anxiety associated with a global pandemic. And now... I mean, let's let, let's label it and you're the clinician. I'm not like agoraphobia because people don't want to go. Any, some of these yeah. older people don't want to go anywhere. Fully vaccinated. Maybe they even had COVID and and got through it and they're boosted, but they don't want to leave the house now because they're still so afraid. Have you seen an increase in all of those things? We have, you know, we, we've seen an increase in a lot of things from COVID, um, you know, or a decrease. So wanting and willingness to engage you know, I think that that initially we know the the isolation from COVID was, if not, you know, as almost as damaging as as COVID itself to the older population. So I think that that was was really a time of of stress and strife for people. But I agree with you, and we have seen people who are still reluctant, even though there are safety now they are safer than they were now that yes. They're in a high-risk population, but they've been able to get boosted and they are able to engage. I've seen that decrease slowly. I think we are beginning to go and visit with our clients. We're helping them get routine medical care that they've put off and not wanting to go out of the house or see a doctor. Um, we've been able to help them re-engage with you know, family or grandchildren. I think the key is really acknowledging the fear in all of us. I wouldn't say, you know, there's... Lots of people probably in our own circles and our in our age group or younger or older that are experiencing these things, you know, reentry has been interesting. And yet I think helping people at their pace recognize the risks of not doing it um, gently sort of, um, you know, we, I use the term very often talking to people about engaging in conversations that, you know, may be a place of, of sensitivity. You know, you can have the conversation sort of uh, you know, a little bit and often. So leaving a door open rather than saying you have to or you must, whether you're trying to get mom to accept home care, stop driving, or, you know, go to the grandchild's uh, birthday party. You know, saying adamantly you should or you shouldn't to things is the first thing you're, you're getting a door slammed in your face, 
you know, you, your conversation stops. So offering suggestions and getting curious, like, well, if not now, when? Or what would need to change? Or, you know, can I check back with you next week on this? Or those are opportunities for continued conversation. And I think it really applies to so many things, and this is one of them. It's really recognizing, you know, a clinical social worker term, and we, we recognize where our client is, and then we ask them, where do they want to go? What's your goal? It's not our goal. It's your goal. And then how do we help you close that gap? Yeah. What is your what is your take on, and you have a lot of experience with this, I'm sure. What is your take on people who don't retire but are not, you know, maybe they go into semi-retirement? My anecdotal experience is those people are sharp. The the minute you stop engaging in activity that was routine and normal for you, and you don't replace that with other stimulus, you're it's a pro, it's a big big problem. I would almost my my parents are in their eighties, and my father's been retired now for thirty years, <laughs> and he found a way to he found a way to replace it. You know he he goes and counts the money for the collections and he was in finance for years. Counts the money and does the bank deposit with the with the pastor at church. He you know is engaged and involved in his community and activities. Is the president of his condo association board. Those things were a replacement for work for him and that has kept him enormously sharp and he's you know he's as sharp as he was 30 years ago and I'm grateful that he's do, he's been able to do and we taught him how to use zoom so he's able to use zoom during the whole you know pandemic so and still keep up with all those activities had he not done that and I see other people that I'm close to who they retired and they decided I'm going to do nothing well it's their decline was hastened in my opinion by the lack of that that the the stimulation that they had what what is as an expert what is your what is your take on that well you your father is just a you know a perfect example of what we would see and recommend what we know scientifically you know we know that um, in you know one we're human beings that are social and we are routine um, you know, we benefit and thrive from being purposeful. And so, you know, we know that that, you know, studies have shown and we know that that is important in our lives in order to feel that we have, you know, we're leaving a legacy that we have engaged in things that are meaningful. And a lot of the stigma, quite frankly, in aging, you know, sees people that the vision of aging and why people are so, you know, afraid of it or, or try to resist it is because we, we, you know, show people sitting on a bench feeding the pigeons or, you know, where the advertisement for the scooter or the, you know, the latest medication. That's not really helpful because quite frankly, our wisdom and our experience is invaluable and other countries know and, and recognize this. So I think what we need to promote across the, you know, the board um, is, is just, you know, vibrancy and aging. And one of the things to do that is, is continuing a purpose. So your purpose when you're working may be to run a successful company and leave a legacy in your career. But once that ends, what, what about that did you enjoy? What were some of your strengths in that? Counting, in finance, counting the money at church, you know? Volunteering in uh, you know, many colleges or have, um, have boards of uh, people who are available to entrepreneurs or business people to come in and mentor. Um, you know, so you name it. Uh, it doesn't have to be any one thing. 
but it's what's meaningful to you. And then how do you adapt that? And again, how do you adapt that? Even if there's a cognitive decline, we help and work with many people who have been incredibly, the top of their game, you know, they were absolutely the most, you know, they were in, in business or finance or professors or, you know, rocket scientists, literally, <laughs> you know, and, and yes, their cognitive decline has, has progressed. They still hold an incredible amount of knowledge and, and purpose and value. And so the question isn't, you know, now that they have that, they need to stop everything. Same as with a physical challenge. It's how do I adapt? And really having someone help with that, we do that with people all the time. What's your purpose? How do you want to continue that? And how do we help you find it? All right, great. So let's talk about planning now. How do we, so how do we plan for this? And when do we start that process? Sure. You know, it's interesting because when I started my career 30 years ago, my, I could probably, I would have dreamed about having the ability to impact people's lives earlier in their aging journey. And yet that was not what people were coming to us for. They were coming to us because the, that older generation was very private. Uh, often family didn't know anything about their legal, their financial or any of those things. That was not, if it was done, it wasn't talked about. It was in a safety deposit box for the trustee. Now, you know, fast forward, I, you know, probably in the last five or so years at least, we have begun to assume uh, clients that are looking for themselves. They may be the adult children of our clients who we help at their 90s, and they're now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and are saying, that's not going to happen to me. I'm mm -hmm. not going to burden my children the way we were burdened. Or, or they're a solo ager, that's a term that's popular now, and they may not have the usual support system built in. So those are folks who are now coming to us as experts with a spectrum of resources. You know, we understand holistically aging. And so they're coming to us and assuming a beginning a relationship with us, much like you might with a financial planner or a legal person. And we're part of a team that's now helping them navigate this, make the changes like you would in any of those other areas and be available when and if issues arise. And ideally to, as I said to you earlier, I think I like to say age by by choice and plan rather than default. Yeah, no, that those that's that's fantastic. And I think that is exactly what people need to need to think about. You can control how you age, but you have to you have to be intentional and you have to you have to put a plan in place during the time when it's probably not the most convenient thing to think about. We're speaking with Kate Granigan. She's an elder care expert. She's the CEO of Life Care Advocates. If you want to reach out to her, you can reach out to her at 617-928-0200, 617-928-0200. Her email address and the website is down in the show notes. So Kate, I'd like you to think about three things that people should take away from our time together. I'll give you a minute to do that because I want to remind folks while you're thinking about it that we are brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. I have a special offer for those of you who are listening, those of you who are watching the show. I want to share with you the same guide that I use in my practice to help people with their business development needs. I call it my revenue roadmap guide. You could call it a marketing plan. And it's a marketing plan that's based on relationship 
relationship-based business development. So here's how it works. You just have to go to revenueroadmapguide.com. That's a website, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info, and there you'll be able to download for free the same plan I use with my clients. I customize it for them. You can customize it for your professional practice, revenueroadmapguide.com. Get your absolutely free business development plan today. All right, so Kate Granigan is an expert. She's an elder care expert, and she's the CEO of Life Care Advocates. Again, her phone number is 617-928-0200. Okay, Kate, so what are the three most important things that you think people should take away from our time together today? Well, I think the first is what we talked about last, which is planning. That for yourself, for your aging family members, it's never too early to plan. And planning doesn't mean that we have all the answers, but it means we are taking control of what we what we can control. And so I think planning is is critical and it really in our in our lives and on that journey. So I think that's number one. I think number two for those out there that are, are in the either early stages or, or in the throes of caregiving that you're not alone, that it feels that way sometimes, but there, there are many, many people and resources out there to help and reaching out and, um, and just beginning to ask the questions and, and tap into those resources will help you and your family have peace of mind and ultimately sometimes, as you said it, save families and save relationships. So I think that's an important piece for people to know. And I think, I guess, just knowing that um, you know, that creating a, a care plan, uh, again, for an aging loved one, it, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to always agree. That that's probably, uh, you know, we're not necessarily always agreeing with our children as we're raising them. Parents and children don't always see eye to eye and that doesn't change when they're aging and where we're the adults in the, uh, you know, the phase of trying to be helpful and give back. But the important thing is having conversations. And then if the, if the areas you're struggling you know, don't match, find ways to honor each other's needs, wishes, and get help when you need it. Um, and ultimately find a place where you can age well and age safely and age you know, with intention. All right, Kate, that was fantastic advice. Now, for the people who are listening and the people who are watching, tell us about who uh, who usually engages you. Obviously, it would be the family member who's concerned about the older person, uh, but we also have a lot of professionals who listen <laughs> to the show. So do you trust in estates attorneys or you know attorneys who specialize in elder care issues? Do they engage you? Yeah, they do get, you know, we have a, a vast... Um, variety of, of people who either send their clients to us or look towards our assistance in their professional experience. Um, estate and elder law attorneys, absolutely. Uh, folks who are helping people navigate their financial experience as they age because, you know, we, need, we can help understand and, and look towards projecting what people might need to think about and consider as they age. Um, you know, medical professionals, insurance professionals, so really often trusted advisors who people are um, coming to because they've had you know, generations sometimes of experience with them and their families, their clients. You know, they may have expertise in the law, um, but they don't know how to help them select an appropriate retirement community. So we work very closely and as a team in collaboration with those folks 
We do things like also go to court and act as representatives, as expert witnesses. We write reports as an objective expert for folks as they're trying to navigate when things aren't just easily had uh, conversations over the dinner table. Sometimes, unfortunately, families have uh, great struggles around that. So our expertise is often called upon in those areas as well. Fantastic. All right, folks, you need to reach out to Kate Granigan. She's an elder care expert. She's the CEO of Life Care Advocates. You can call her at 617-928-0200. I'm putting her email address and her website in the show notes. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Alrighty, folks, that'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and we will be back here tomorrow with another great interview. But until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.